Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today we're discussing the rise and decline of U.S. military culture programs 2004 to 2020, published by Marine Corps University Press. My guest today is Dr. Carrie Fosher, one of the editors of the book. Dr. Fosher is a cultural anthropologist and director of research here at Marine Corps University. She worked on military and intelligence community culture programs from 2006 through 2020, including 10 years as the director of research for the Marine Corps' service-wide program that provided cultural, regional, and language training and education. Dr. Fosher, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for the chance to talk about our book. Um, I love the scope of this podcast, and I'm excited to have our book be part of it. As are we. So thanks. Before we get into the meat of the book, can you give our listeners some background on the project and the history of U.S. culture programs in general? So I'll start with a little bit of the history. Every so often, the U.S. military realizes that it needs to do more to equip its personnel with the knowledge, the concepts, the skills that they need to understand, whether it's a local population, an adversary, or some kind of a partner wherever they happen to be deployed or assigned. There were big culture programs in World War II and Vietnam and some smaller ones at other times. Each time as things wind down, the military shuts these programs down and then has to start them up again later. We wrote about this in the book that military seems to come out of these cycles with a sense that it's never going to do that again, whatever that is for a particular conflict. Could be major theater operations, counterinsurgency, or what have you. Um, there also seems to be a general lack of understanding of the, the value of culture-related education across a broad range of military missions. But you know, the services are always having to make hard choices about what capabilities they can afford. So it's unfortunate, but not particularly surprising that these capabilities, including cultural programs, sometimes get cut and have to be recreated over and over again. The most recent cycle of building cultural capabilities started to gain steam around 2004. And that's the cycle that we cover in this book. The drivers were obviously the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the demand signal that was coming from the operating forces uh, was pretty intense. They needed to understand more about the people they were encountering, not just to handle stability operations uh, with local populations, but to understand adversaries, to work with partner militaries, third country nationals, NGOs, and sometimes even other U.S. partners like state and USAID. So there were a lot of different ways that they wanted to use the knowledge and skills. One really common one was just wanting to ensure that U.S. actions didn't inadvertently turn the opinion of local population against coalition forces. And for that, they needed a pretty broad range of knowledge. They had to have the ability to find out things like how the local economy works so that you don't mess it up by blocking that tiny little dirt path that actually is a critical livestock trail. They needed more complex things like being able to navigate key leader engagement sessions. And they needed the ability to anticipate the second and third order consequences of their actions. For the first few years of this cycle, it was sort of a wild west of capability development. All kinds of programs and initiatives got funded, some good, not some, not so good. But once the services got their culture centers up and running, which was around 2006, 2007, we started to see a little bit more coherence and coordination across the services and over time, we started to see demand signal, not just to get people ready for operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, but for a really broad range of missions around the globe. Then uh, in about 2018, we started hearing some pretty serious rumblings about cutting culture programs and how military personnel were going to need to interact cross-culturally once operations in Iraq and Afghanistan wound down. 
that was despite the fact that the demand signal from the operating forces was still pretty high. But by 2020, uh, one thing and another, a lot of programs across the services had been really significantly reduced or like the Marine Corps Culture Center, they were completely shut down. So there is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe it as a cultural tension between certain civilian backgrounds and the military. And so we, we typically think of, uh, when we think of a culture center, I, I, at least myself, will initially think of anthropology as the primary set of experience that might inform military culture studies. But we've got a whole host of them, right? We've got cultural geography, we've got sociology, we've got cross-cultural psychology. Am I imagining this friction between DOD and these disciplines? Or is that friction real? And if it is, how might that play into this cycle of feast or famine when it comes to the military prioritizing cultural studies and utilizing those assets and being supported then by these disciplines that, at least in my head, might be somewhat reluctant to support military operations? Well, you're definitely not imagining it. (laughs) I think it's maybe a little bit more real than most people in military organizations recognize that it is. And those fraught or difficult relationships and the ongoing miscommunication uh, that, Mm -hmm. that happen, that was a really significant factor in this cycle in the military's ability to recruit and retain qualified people. It's too long to get into right now, but, but there's a history between the military and uh, some of the disciplines that you mentioned that is, is really not good. And some of the scholars in those fields feel like their trust was violated when the information they provided ended up being used to hurt the people that they do research with or uh, when the military wasn't fully transparent about its reasons that for asking for help. And then that in turn created a, an understandable wariness about responding to new requests for help at the individual level, but also at the level of the academic professional associations. And those associations play a role in setting the ethical guidelines for engagement. It's also worth mentioning that the memories of these academic communities, it's long. Mm-hmm. They remember what happened in World War II in Vietnam. So this is not new to them. And they're coming to the table with those histories in mind. So improving the relationships wasn't just about the military learning to play nice with academia. It was also about being able to get the right advice from the right people. I was most heavily involved in the debates about anthropology's engagement uh, with the military. Actually, since 2001, I I recognized recently that it's been 20 years of of doing this. (laughs) You know, the biggest challenges were always the military's tendency to dismiss academic concerns as anti-military bias. And and sometimes that was true, but a a lot more often that was not what was driving the concerns. On the other side, there there were some pretty superficial understandings of the military and its organizations within civilian academic communities. That didn't help with the discussions. I think we made some progress on both sides initially and that some of what we got done on the academic side may have stuck. I'm I'm less confident that the military learned how to approach academic communities more effectively. There's still a degree of dismissiveness and impatience, particularly with understanding that academics often have ethical codes that they have to follow, and they're going to ask hard questions about military approaches to culture or anything else that they get asked about. They're not just going to accept whatever is presented at face value. In terms of lessons learned about improving the relationships over time, one thing military personnel have to remember, and and this sounds harsh, but it's true, is that 
outside of a war taking place on U.S. soil, a lot of academics really feel little or no pressure to assist national security organizations. There's often a really big downside for them and very little direct benefit. Also, you know, and this is something I think military organizations don't really see, but in a lot of the social and behavioral sciences, there's very little graduate training in ethical decision-making for careers outside the academy. So it takes a while for people to figure out what they can and can't do in a military context. And they have to ask a lot of questions, which a lot of times the military finds annoying. I'm actually finding it a lot easier to work with the anthropology community on those issues. Now, uh, with the military's demand signal waning, there's, there's more time for building understanding outside of a crisis. So I, I guess I'd say that if the military organizations want these relationships to be better the next time DOD realizes that they're needed, now is the time to engage. And that's having people like the authors in this book teach classes and give talks in academic settings, maybe host some discussions with academic professional associations. I, I also think that this is the time to start thinking about maybe some more enduring ways to integrate the sciences, ways that aren't so vulnerable to getting cut when one capability falls out of favor. A lot of the disciplines that are critical in building and sustaining cultural capabilities, the ones you mentioned, right, it's cultural anthropology, cultural geography, sociology, and so forth, they tend to be pretty thin on the ground in DOD during normal times. In between cycles of interest in culture, DOD tends to rely pretty heavily on history, political science, or international relations, and it's related fields like security studies. But other disciplines have a lot more to offer than just work in culture programs. And if military organizations don't integrate them for the long haul, they're going to struggle to engage with them when the need becomes a crisis. So we need to think a little bit about how to get better at getting and keeping scientists from a broader range of disciplines. A lot of what you just said is interesting to me, but but two points in particular, as you had mentioned that the academic disciplines have long memories I have found the military does not. And it, I think part of that is turnover and part of it is there is an institutional, here I'll only speak for the Marine Corps, but I think it's probably true in the other services. There is this institutional desire to anticipate the next threat and to meet it before it becomes a threat, right? You always want to get out ahead of something. And so people talk about the shiny ball. I don't think it's that. I think it is a very sincere effort to identify and prepare for and get out ahead of and neutralize potential future threats. And so if we don't think of cultural knowledge as being valuable to that right now in 2021, then it's understandable why that wouldn't be a priority for emphasis. And with the turnover that we've got, then it's it's equally understandable why institutionally the Marine Corps and the other services might not maintain this foundation that would make it easier to flex back to cultural studies as a support mechanism quickly, uh, five, 10 years, 20 years, whenever it becomes relevant again in the future. So it is interesting to think how the two different fields, the way they're organized and prioritized differently, lend to this friction when the military needs to be able to work with the cultural disciplines. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, in anthropology, we used to talk about the emic and the edic perspectives, right? With emic being, you know, trying to get the perspective of the the local, and the edic being the more anthropological perspective. You know, and e emically, everything that you said makes sense. From the outsider or edic perspective, the military's tendency to forget these capabilities or to not recognize that they are relevant for more than just whatever the last conflict was does come across as very short-sighted and narrow. But I can I can see both sides of that coin. The other thing that I was thinking of uh, while you were talking just now, 
is this idea of how do we retain some organic capacity. So it's not that we have to flex 180 or start cold from zero, but we can get a bit of a warm start because we've incorporated some capacity more organically within our organizations. And I look at the faculty that we've got here at MCU, and you're right, right? We have majority, overwhelmingly, almost exclusively political scientists and military historians. And we have an international lawyer, and that's incredibly valuable to what we do. We have an ethicist at, on all the MCU faculty. I also happen to have that in my research, but but as an administrator now, that's not an active research program that I'm maintaining like Dr. Chipotle. We have one cultural anthropologist. Thank you, Dr. Fosher. We have Lauren, Dr. Lauren McKenzie, yeah, who is our, our cross-cultural communication specialist. Thank you, Dr. McKenzie. But because we can by name identify them, it is a, a very small, almost niche community within the larger organization. And it would be not just interesting, but I think valuable for not just MCU, but across PME institutions to think more holistically about the disciplines that might add value, the underrepresented or underappreciated uh, disciplines that could add value in the, the complex future that we're anticipating to see. Even if it turns out to be great power competition, it is great power competition. Even if it turns out to be major combat operations, we're not going to fight them the way we fought back in the Cold War. And so aligning our faculty with the experiences and the, the sets of expertise that might have worked back in the Cold War, it's not necessarily going to serve us in 2030 or 2040 and beyond. Yeah, I, I think there's room to explore that. I'll give you one historical tale from when MCU was first trying to integrate it, its anthropologists at the beginning of this cycle. They hired uh, an anthropologist by the name of Paula Holmes Eber, who's a wonderful woman. Yeah, M Middle East expert um, did a, amazing stuff across the service and and with other services. But when she got to got her office at MCU, the sign on her door read anthropologist, like she was a zoo exhibit. It was um, not her title, not any indication that she was a faculty member, just that she was a specimen. So we need we need to get to the point where that is that is not how these disciplines are thought of as, as one-offs, but rather as, a, as an integral part of how we bring the social and behavioral sciences to bear on military problems. Yeah, absolutely. So what brought you to this edited volume now? It's coming out in 2021, so that leads me to believe you did most of the heavy lifting in 2019, 2020. How did you identify contributors? Why did this become a DOD-wide project and not focus just on the Marine Corps experience? Talk to us a little bit about the mechanics of the project itself and how it came together the way it did. Well, I think it's worth saying a couple of things about where, where the idea for, for the book came from. We were pretty sure, even at the start of this cycle, that based on history, eventually a lot of the programs would get shut down. So we were braced for it. And one of the things that a lot of us noticed when we were just getting started was that we knew there had been these programs in the past, but it was really difficult to find detailed information on them. Uh, we wanted to avoid known obstacles. We wanted to build on the past re rather than reinventing it, but there just wasn't much information. There was some scholarship often written by people outside of the military, and some of that was good critique, but there were very few actual records that we could use to kind of piece together, well, this worked, that didn't work, You know, don't go down this path, that's a bad idea. We wanted to leave a better record for the next round of people who have to rebuild the capabilities, whether that's in five years or 20. And we've done some of that through 
publications in the past. We created archives. We've been tucking material into doctrine and other places. And then most recently, this this book that uh, Lauren McKenzie and I and some great contributors pulled together, we wanted to capture lessons learned from some of the people who have been thinking about this from different angles for a long time. So it was less about trying to get you know, representatives from every PME institution or anything like that. It was more about really trying to capture a depth of perspective that people had. So the book does have authors from Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps. There are people with different educational backgrounds. We're not all anthropologists. There's some who have served in the military, some who haven't. And I think even more importantly, there are people who have different roles, people who are on the faculty, people who are researchers, administrators, organizational leaders, and some folks who've had multiple roles over the years. And I think those different vantage points and experiences uh, helped us cover a pretty broad range of issues from the details of teaching military personnel to the more programmatic aspects of building and sustaining the programs. And that's really what we were shooting for. Hopefully those lessons learned are gonna be useful to people who are still working culture related programs, but a primary purpose for the book being the way that it is, is that we wanted it to be a kind of message in a bottle for the next time. Mm. And can you talk a little bit, I know that you personally did a lot of work in the Marine Corps to help archive as much information as possible, not just about the culture program itself, though that certainly will be important when, if we should re-energize something culture-related in the future, but also some of the data that you all had collected in the time that you had worked. Can you talk to our listeners? Where can they access? Is it the the Marine Corps archives here at MCU? How can researchers who might be interested in this topic and want to go forward, what publicly available information is there that they can find? Where would you point them to? So three primary places. The first one is for information about the Marine Corps' culture efforts, the Marine Corps' History Division's archives branch uh, has a collection on the Marine Corps' Culture Center. And we did our best to uh, try to include not only hard copies of materials from the culture program, but also a collection of lessons learned from various people in the organization. So that is over there. I'm not sure that they have got it up and running yet, but they do have the materials, so it should be available soon. The second place is the Defense Technical Information Center. A great number of both the culture products that the center created, as well as the research that my research team did for the culture center, which was largely on the Marine Corps itself. That's all hanging on the Defense Technical Information Center's portal and is publicly available. You don't have to be a military employee to access that. And then the third place is the qualitative data repository at Syracuse University, where we deposited the data and reports from four of the research groups' projects. Those are all projects focused on the Marine Corps, not on other cultures, but that is also all publicly available. There are a couple of data sets that are restricted and require you to have a human subjects review protocol, but uh, the rest of it is all publicly available. Awesome. Thank you. There's so much value in what the center had pulled together over the over it was in existence for over a decade that even if the Marine Corps isn't going to leverage that expertise or that knowledge at this particular moment I think there's value in letting the broader community have access to it. So I personally really appreciate the efforts that you and the folks at Kaiakal made to ensure that 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 information was publicly available and thoughtfully 
I don't want to say curated because that means that that always implies to me that you're yes. filtering things out. And I don't think that was the intent. I think the intent was to to present it in a way that people could pick it up and it's understandable as opposed to just a cardboard box full of papers smashed together, you know, like someone's moving out of their house at midnight, right? <laughs> so I appreciate the intention and the thoughtfulness that went into that archiving and cataloging process. Uh, and if you've got any of our listeners, if this is your research area, or if you know anyone who is interested in researching these areas, check the information out. It's there for you to continue our discussions and continue our, our accumulation of knowledge in this area. But Dr. Fosher, I want to turn back to the edited volume here for another couple of minutes, and I'm going to do something that all authors hate, and that's I'm going to quote you to you. Uh, <laughs> in your chapter, a few things I know about culture programs or why nothing works. You write, perhaps the most important lesson learned from this cycle is the need for well-organized strategic communication starting as soon as possible. I would not have anticipated that would be the most important lesson. What makes it the most important lesson over this last cycle? And then the follow-on question would be, what should a well-organized strategic communication effort look like? So, well, I guess, you know, what, what makes it the most important lesson is money. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, cultural programs, like every other kind of program, live and die based on the perceptions of two groups of people. First is the folks who control how things are described in budget briefs to senior leaders. And the second group is those senior leaders themselves who are making the decisions. And in some ways, as we certainly saw with the Marine Corps cultural program, it doesn't matter how well the program <laughs> describes itself how well it defends itself, how well it can demonstrate continued demand signal from the operating forces. If the person crunching all that information down into a brief for a senior leader doesn't think culture matters, then it's going to be presented in a way that makes it easy to cut. And if the senior leader making the decision doesn't know much about culture or thinks it's just customs and courtesies, then it's going to get cut. And it really is as simple as that, that you have to have not just very senior leaders and the operating forces on your side. You you need to have the people in the supporting establishment well-informed enough to make good decisions um, and ideally being allies. As for what it should look like, I am not by any stretch of the imagination a strategic communication expert. I can say a few things. I think we relied way too much on the idea that military personnel coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan were going to be advocates for culture programs. And, and they were, but there's a difference between knowing that culture education and training mattered for the deployment that you were just on and seeing its value across the full range of military operations. There's also a big difference between knowing the value in an operational context and then being able to articulate that importance in the language of the military supporting establishment. And we could, and, and and absolutely should have done more to help those advocates and as well as to create more of them. And, and I think also uh, just on a more personal note, those of us who did know how ephemeral DOD's interest in culture tends to be, should have done more to uh, inform the rest of the people involved in culture programs so that they would have been more likely to prioritize strategic communication. I think we did do, try to do a little bit of that early on. We got some pushback. And rather than continuing to press our arguments, we kind of quieted down and we're just like, all right, well, eventually they'll see. But by the time they saw it, it was really too late to do anything about it. Hmm. So this book focuses on training and education programs, and you don't really touch things like the Army's human train system or many of the efforts that, that were undertaken over the past decade to develop technology-based solutions. 
why did you exclude those from the project? What was the rationale for just taking the slice of culture programs that you did in the book? So we decided to focus on education and training primarily to fill a gap in the literature that's developed over the last 15 years. The Army's human terrain system got a lot of attention in publications and the media, but it was a relatively small capability, but it still got a, a ton of attention. And science and technology efforts like cultural databases, modeling and simulation, that kind of thing, also got a fair amount of attention because DOD was funding the researchers and then those researchers put out publications. But despite the attention that those programs got, the reality is that most of the new social scientists who came in during this cycle ended up choosing to work in education and training programs. In a lot of cases, that was because we realized that that's the best way to support military personnel is to give them the thinking tools that they needed, things that that would work when the subject matter experts weren't there or the technology systems didn't work. I think we also felt like the best way to institutionalize the capability for the long haul was in the minds of the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, and the Marines. So education and training programs just weren't exciting enough to get much media attention. And and to be fair, uh, those of us working in them did not prioritize writing about what we were doing, which was, uh, in hindsight, not not a great idea. So we wanted to ensure that this book captured some of what went on within the education and training domain, just to help round out the record of this most recent cycle. Okay, yeah, that makes good sense. So are there any issues that you wish you could have explored in the book that you didn't? I I don't know so much issues, but I, I do, having looked at the book as a whole now, I do really regret that we didn't spend more time talking about the work that was done by some of the early proponents. We mentioned earlier uh, Paula Holmes Eber and certainly Barack Salmoni, who were instrumental in getting the Marine Corps Culture Center up and running and getting a foothold in Marine Corps education. Remy Hajar, who's at West Point now, and he was part of the Army's Culture Center at a time when he was absolutely critical to the development of the cross-cultural competence concept that we all ended up using. Mm-hmm. Alison Green Sands, who is essential at the OSD level, her husband, Rob, who's another anthropologist, and maybe even more importantly, the military personnel, you know, the Todd Lyons, Bill McCullough, John Byrd, and so many of the others who made substantive contributions, but they're also the ones who carved out the organizational spaces and provided the top cover so that we could get all the work done, right? It's, it's not as though we all just came in and everything happened easily, right? That we we needed those people to help help us figure out how to get things done and, and to occasionally protect us from, from the uh, slings and arrows of, of working in DOD. So, you know, the book ended up being written mainly by PhDs, but we've always been just one piece of the puzzle and getting anything done required partnerships with all the people who had the different pieces. And I, I guess I hope one of the main lessons people take away from the book is that Building and sustaining cultural programs or really any complex capability, it it takes a lot of compromise, a lot of collaboration, and that willingness to recognize that no one of us has got all the answers. What surprised you while you were working on the book? (laughs) I love this question. So I I was pretty surprised by how much the authors have started to agree on certain things over the years. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, things like the the challenge of DOD's I'll just say rather rather limited approach to program assessment, um, something that really undermined our ability to demonstrate how valuable the operating forces found cultural knowledge and skills, right? That was a, a big bone of contention early on. And I think people reading this book now may think that Lauren and I just selected authors who tend to agree with us. But in reality, what you're reading is the outcome of more than a decade of arguments, you know, usually collegial <laughs> arguments, but arguments nonetheless. 
as someone who has a significant commitment to program assessment and improvement, but is operating with a budget that doesn't always support robust program assessment and improvement, uh, I might find myself right in the middle of that argument uh, as it unfolds. It can be it, it undoubtedly important and it is always a challenge, right? Yep. So last question for you. We ask all of our guests, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Well, you've caught me at a moment when I am actually rereading some things. Um, some Always books, a good practice. Yeah, books about how we understand, consume, and, and sometimes are misled or bamboozled by science and technology. I'm going to quickly mention three. Controlling Human Heredity by Diane Paul. This is an older book, but it's the one that first opened my eyes to how biology gets politicized and and to the military's occasional slide towards things that border on eugenics. It's a really important book. Brainwashed, The Seductive Appeal of Mindless Neuroscience by Sally Sattel and Scott Littlefield. It's a great book, an easy read about what we can and can't know based on technologies like fMRIs. You know, just because the brain lights up does not mean that what's going on is what you think it is. Really? <laughs> so this is the next book I need to read. <laughs> yeah. And then um, Weapons of Mass Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And it's a a little bit overwrought, but again, a good short read on how bias creeps into big data, how those inaccuracies are masked, and the impacts that it can have. Those are three good choices uh, for us to all improve our, I don't want to say science literacy, because it's not, none of that is going to make us a scientist, but maybe our effectiveness as a consumer of information. I like them. Great. Well, Dr. Fosher, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Patcha Howell, and our show manager, Captain Michael Goff. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University.